Welcome to the Christ Community Church Podcast. We're glad you're here. Our mission is to live the way of Jesus so we can leave the world better than we found it. If you'd like more information about our church, you can click on the link in the show notes or head to Christ-community.com. All right, let's get started. Good morning. Good morning. It's good to be uh, with you all. I, uh, I find hope this thing holds up. Um, so when I first moved uh, to Georgia with my family, we would, uh, I remember going to preach as a guest preacher with church in Atlanta. And my oldest daughter, who was here with me last week, uh, she would always, she was so happy once she knew she could write. She would answer any question on any card she saw. And so we'd be at the this church and she sees this guest card, like the ones that are in these seats. And there are prayer requests. Well, first of all, she checked to be a member because she didn't quite understand how that works. It's like, I'm here to plant the church, baby girl. You can't just go to their church. You're here to you want to. Then on the next line, it said, what can we be praying for you for? And she put, please make my daddy a better preacher. <laughs> so, Jared, I needed that prayer, brother, because I, I, I realized how weak and feeble I really am. Um, I, I'm really, I'm really thankful. Uh, as Garrett said, we we got a chance to spend some time together at Perimeter, and we really did just knit together over a lot of mutual loves that that we have. And and so this topic I know is near and dear to to his heart. I think it's something that is often left out in our conversation as Christians, and that is. What does real leadership look like? Now, this is an, uh, there are any number of answers to this question. If you go to Christian bookstore, whichever one still exists, if you go to Christian bookstore, you go online and go on Amazon, uh, you, you, you see in, uh, just no shortage of books about leadership or whole ministries based on leadership. And yet I suspect, as a matter of fact, I strongly believe that there is, there are some 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 huge gaps in our understanding of leadership from God's perspective. What I mean by that is that most times what we do is we will look at Scripture and we will look for areas where leadership is described, but we rarely look for the areas where real leadership is prescribed. I think there's only a few places in Scripture where those exist. So I want us to spend some time looking through what does it mean to follow what we what, what you might call God's heart on leadership. What is floor, what does flourishing leadership look like? Because ultimately, if we all seek out to be flourishing leaders, then we're an actual flourishing church, right? And then the way that that manifests itself in community is readily apparent. I think the reason why we 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 miss this a little bit, by way of illustration, I'll just ask this: how many of you have ever seen the movie Up? Right, good, good. Spoiler alert. If you haven't seen it by now, I'm sorry, but I'm about to mess it up for you. Because you had more than enough time to see this movie. So if, if you remember, by way of, of just, just refreshing you, if you remember, there's this, uh, the, the opening montage is crucial to the movie, right? First 10 minutes of the movie uh, means makes makes the, the whole difference. You've got this man, this older elderly man named Carl Fredrickson, and you see like his life, and he meets the love of his life, Ellie, and they go through their life in various stages of life, and they, they're having mutual uh, enjoyment, and they're having times of pain and times of suffering, and eventually you find out that Ellie has some type of illness that eventually causes uh, her to succumb to that illness, and she passes away. Now, if you only went into that movie after that montage, 
that all you would think is this is a movie about an old, cantankerous man who doesn't really like Boy Scouts, who just likes random adventures with balloons. <laughs> because you need to know the first 10 minutes of that movie for it to have any context, yeah. for you to understand what the point is. Sadly, in the same way that some might do that with the movie, we do that with the text. Because when I tell you, hey, let's, let's talk about leadership, and we're going to come out of Proverbs 31, what do we all think about when we think about Proverbs 31? Women. Women. Usually, I, I, would, I would venture to say most men in the room have never been to a men's Bible study and said, hey, y'all, we're going to read Proverbs 31 together. <laughs> and if we have done it, it's largely to create this over-idealized list by which we can shame women. I don't want to step on pinky toes, but I believe that this is something we need to kind of dig into. If you're a man, if you're a man and you have wanted to see what God has to say on leadership, but when you look at Proverbs 31, you think this is how to make a good Christian Stepford wife, you might have missed God's heart. So let's dig into this text together and begin to figure out, because these first nine verses are verses that we always conveniently skip over. And we need this because this is, I would argue, the only place in Scripture where God prescribes leadership, prescribes it. So let's dig into this together, and then we're going we're gonna to walk through these, these, these verses. So uh, beginning with verse 1, I know it'll be on the screen here too, uh, Proverbs 31. The words of King Lemuel, a pronouncement that his mother taught him. What should I say, my son? What son of my womb, what son of my vows? Don't spend your energy on women or your efforts on those who destroy kings. It is not for kings, Lemuel. It is not for kings to drink wine or for rulers to desire beer. Otherwise, he will drink, forget what is decreed, and pervert justice for all the oppressed. Give beer to one who is dying and wine to one whose life is bitter. Let him drink so that he can forget his poverty and remember his trouble no more. Speak up for those who have no voice, for the justice of all who are dispossessed. Speak up, judge righteously, and defend the, ca and defend the cause of the oppressed and needy. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. How many of y'all have done that study on Proverbs 31? <laughs> that first night, of course, the pastor in the background. That's right. We expect you, pastor. We know. But I mean, honestly, by and large, this is not where we go, right? We typically will go to, to a book like Nehemiah and go, this is the book on leadership. Now, things are described. If anything, that is a book to show how do we obey God in the midst of persecution? How do we obey God despite certain things, certain repercussions that will come? How do we hold God's word and faith in that? That's great, but that's still leadership described to some degree. Yeah. Not a lot of prescription there, right? So we start filling in blanks, and we start, in many ways, kind of remaking what we think leadership looks like in our image and not in God's image. And here, there's some curious things that are brought out that I think really, really jump. And I think the reason, really quickly, why we need this is because if we don't understand God's heart here, we'll be guilty of putting the emphasis on the wrong syllable, right? <laughs> That's how we get to 10 to jump right in there. We, we skip right over these first nine verses. I'm going to give you three things here to remember in this text. Uh, when I was younger, back in the day, when all you had was like a few channels, I'm just kind of dating myself, but you only had a few channels. And sometimes when there was something that your local municipality wanted you to know, they would typically put something on called a PSA. You guys remember PSAs? 
public service announcement. It was something vitally important that you needed to know. They would interrupt whatever program you were watching to do this public service announcement. Well, three letters I want us to remember here, PSA, prudence, sobriety, and advocacy. These are the three things that God, the three major buckets that God uses right, as this litmus test for whether or not our hearts are in line with God with respect to leadership, prudence, sobriety, and advocacy. So these first three verses here, just look at this again, because you this is uh, there's a lot of questions that we may have. The words of King Lemuel, a pronouncement that his mother taught him. First, who is King Lemuel? Most of us have no idea who he is. A lot of theories. We have no idea who he is. There's very little that's written about him. We don't know much about this king, this leader. But we do know that it's a whole lot of wisdom. It's monotone. I find it very interesting. We won't dig into this much, but I find it very interesting that arguably the only place where leadership is prescribed comes from the words of a woman. For those of us that think that you need a Y chromosome to be a leader, you need to dig in. I'm not going to touch on that much either. But that's, it's interesting that the only place really, where that is prescribed is from the wisdom of this king's mother. And she gives him this wisdom. And she says this first very, very interesting thing. She says, don't spend your energy on women or your efforts on those who destroy kings. Now, it's easy to kind of jump there. Some people that might look at this and go, okay, well, this, the key thing is to watch out for those wicked women. That is not what we should draw from this. Because ultimately then, who were the only leaders? Men. So there's no question that they were going to point to the people that they would normally be with in relationships. Today, you've got leaders on either side. So don't think that this is just a shot at women. If anything, if we're going to make this more contextual now, this is largely saying, be wise with whom you allow yourself to be vulnerable. Yeah. Be wise with, with who you allow yourself to have deep, intimate relationship with. Because ultimately, whatever it is that God has called you to, there is something that can occur. There are relationships that can happen that will take you completely off task. When you really think about what that would have meant for a king, largely, one of the biggest strategies, one of the wisest strategies, sadly, that kings, that other kingdoms would do to try to topple or manipulate other kingdoms is through relationships. Or if they just wanted to ensure that they had good working relations and diplomatic relations with the nation, that one king would have his daughter marry the other king or have a relative marry the other king to ensure that relationships are good, ensure that diplomatic relations are present. But if you ended up joining yourself to someone that was, as people say, now toxic, or you ended up joining yourself to someone who had uh, certain ulterior motives that could cause damage, you needed to be circumspect. You needed to be wise. You needed to be careful. And so what God is really saying here, what, what Lemuel's mother is saying is, you need to be careful. You need to be prudent in the ways that you build these personal relationships, not just for yourself. By the way, this isn't just so that you can be your best self and someone's helping you reach whatever pinnacle you think you have for yourself, but because your life is not your own. And if your life is not your own and your life is meant to be poured out for others and you're a leader, so there are those within your charge that are heavily dependent on your wisdom, be careful who you give your strength to. So when this, this, this idea of being prudent is something that makes sense for anybody, whether you're a king, whether you're a janitor, whether you're an accountant, whether you're a dad, mom, son, daughter, this is something that should be true of all of us because this is true of God's heart. So how would we kind of put this? Godly leaders 
avoid a, a decadent lifestyle that is ca categorized by unhealthy romantic relationships, friendships, family connections, picking people also who may be life draining starts to destroy you mentally, physically, spiritually. Don't amass a harem of romantic interests. Find one wise and godly spouse. All these things are things that we should be thinking as wise leaders, which is why the second half of the chapter comes up. If you want to look at what Proverbs 31, 10 and on and so forth should be, it's not just how to figure out, find the right woman that wakes up early and makes clothes out of lentils. Like that's not really what that is there for. The goal is to say, how do I find a wise spouse, a wise partner? This next section, verses four and five, it is not for kings, Lemuel, it is not for kings to drink wine or for rulers to desire beer. Otherwise, he will drink, forget what is decreed, and pervert justice for all the oppressed. Sobriety in decision-making, sobriety in the ways that we have our own kind of creature comforts, the ways that we recreate, the ways that we self-soothe, there's deep sobriety that's necessary for a wise leader. Godly leaders avoid abusing substances, relationships, or any other comfort that can impair your judgment. Why? It's not just because being impaired is bad. It is. But it's not just because of that. Many times, so this isn't like, this part of the text is not necessarily this invitation into being a teetotaler. This isn't, the point of this is not make sure that you have the right behavior, right? It's important, behavior is important, but what is the undergirding that behavior? So I say this because many times within Christian circles, it's common for folks, you ever had somebody that just loves to tell you what they've never done? <laughs> People love to, well, I wouldn't know anything about that. I've never had a drink in my life. Well, that's good. You sound like you have a problem with pride, but, but that's great that you haven't taken a drink before. That's wonderful. I haven't been involved in that kind of behavior. Okay, but the question is why? Is it just so that you get to feel better about yourself? You get to feel closer to God? You get to feel like I have made more brownie points here? Or, as the text says, because I know who's going to be affected if my judgment is impaired because my life is not my own. My decisions are never just my own. They're going to affect other people. So if I'm a leader, if I'm a king here, my decision-making, the ways that I self-soothe, the ways that I try to relax and recreate and care for myself, if it pulls me away from whatever it is God's called me to do for others, that's the problem. That's the issue. And so what she starts, what she tells Lemuel is, ultimately, you need to make sure that you don't give yourself to these strong drinks, because if your judgment is impaired, who's going to be affected? Justice for the oppressed is going to be affected. The people who need you to show up for them are not going to have your protection, are not going to have your advocacy. This is a huge part of what leadership entails. Ensure, what is it that I do to take care of myself? Does it get in the way? Does it impede on any level my ability to advocate and care for the neighbor, fellow image bearers? Or are the ways that I self-soothe ways that I hide and isolate from fellow image bearers? Are they ways for me to overlook the pain of fellow image bearers? We're going to see that in a minute. 
A godly leader would avoid being drunk or high because the consequences that may follow. I don't want to see the, the rights of those uh, uh, that need help be uh, perverted and, and afflicted. And I rarely hear this aspect brought up when we talk about leadership. You just, you just don't. You Google and you'll see the five P's of leadership, seven C's of leadership. We have whole leadership institutes, but these things are rarely, if ever, brought up. They might have a tangential connection here or there, but they're not the thrust. They're not the main point, and yet it is the main point in God's economy. A godly leader will avoid anything that will impair their judgment because they realize how important their judgment is for those that need it. And then verses six and seven, I think there's a real, uh, a real, a real push towards this idea of mercy. When you when you read this, he says, "Give beer." She says, "Give beer to one who is dying, and wine to one whose life is bitter. Let him drink so that he can forget his poverty and remember his trouble no more." Now, wait a minute. Didn't you just say nothing to no to strong drink? Okay, now I, I just feel like there's multiple things happening here. This duplicitous message you're sending there, Lemuel's mother. I, I don't really get it. We should have got the daddy to talk because I don't know that you're making a whole lot of sense. No, don't go there. That's not good. There is a real point here and why this is there, right? Because don't take this to mean, yay, let's throw a cake party for Jesus. That's not what this is. But what this is saying is a wise leader, a godly leader, seeks to alleviate the suffering of those that are within their care. See, when you understand what a king's role was, I was in the military for about six years, and one of the things that you know when you learn military history, when there are people on the battlefield who may have been mortally wounded, there's really not much you can do to end the suffering. But there may be some things you can do to numb the suffering. There may be some things you can do to just help them make it in the midst of their suffering. And so what a wise leader, what a wise king would do, what a, what a wise a battalion leader would do, if there is something there that someone's they, they're mortally wounded and you know that they're going to die, they would give them something just to make it easier, just to numb the pain. See, we think we look at that as it, there's we have these immediate kind of reactions to that. It sounds like, oh, this is just escapism. Well, there, there's, there, there's, a, there's a, 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 a scale here, right? There's a continuum here. But in many ways, there are people where there is, there are no other options for whatever suffering they're going through. And what wise leaders do, they show mercy and they say, I want to do whatever I can. If I can't remove the suffering completely, if I can't alleviate the suffering completely, maybe I can mitigate the effects of the suffering to some degree. You know what that means? If you're a wise leader, you've actually got to have some real empathy. You've got to be able to read the people around you. You've got to be able to know and understand where their suffering actually is. What is the anatomy of this person's suffering? You may not be able to completely uh, uh, reconstitute it, and no one can. But I think a good, a good working definition for empathy for me would be this. The ability to, to, to relive someone's pain enough so that you can help relieve their pain. If you're able to understand it enough, just to understand it, to say, how can I just try to relive a little bit of it? Can I just hear some of it, put on a little bit of your skin, be able to feel a little bit of what you're feeling, hear a little bit of your history so that I can start to relive a little bit of that. Then I can, in, with wisdom and, and the spirit of God, begin to try to relieve a little bit of that. That's what a godly leader does. Where is that in our leadership books? 
Something about our relationship with God should always, there's no question that there's this personal relationship that's important, but if it doesn't move us out, if it doesn't move us to a place where we now know how to holistically love our neighbor better, if we don't get there, then there's some part of our gospel that's truncated. There's some part of our gospel that's missing. As a church, many times, the reason why we struggle with this, and all of us do, I think that one of the reasons why church can be so hard to, to engage these kinds of issues is because I kind of think that churches exist in one of two ways. By and large, there's exceptions for sure. This church, I'm sure, is the exception. But there are many churches that follow fall one way or the other. You're either a church of ghosts or you're a church of corpses. So you've got a church of ghosts, which I think a lot of churches, specifically those in, in really good, what we would say good, solid theological environments, and we, we, we know our scriptures and we know good theology and we know what it is. So when things happen, we know what the litmus test should be used. We know what syllabus to use to evaluate things. And we've got gr good theology and we want to be connected really well. And what do we, we care? We want to see people know Jesus. We want to see people reconcile to a holy God. We want that. We know that's God's heart. But for some churches, that kind of is where it ends. In other words, we're a church of ghosts. I care about your soul, but your corporeal needs, body issues. We're going to wait for heaven for that. In many ways, that was what people used to call the plantation gospel. Because you had people who would be on the plantation and having horrific things, or even after slavery and after certain things. I know things are hard, things are really bad, but man, in that great by and by, you listen to the old spirituals, that's what people rested on. Sometimes we think that's so good, and I applaud the faith of these folks, but in some ways, it's a sad uh, indictment on the state of the church at the time, yeah. because it was in many ways, we can't do anything about your body right now, but at least you'll be in heaven. Yeah. And yet, God tells us in Micah 6 8, what do I require of you? that you do justice, love mercy, and walk humbly with your God. So where's the disconnect? So we've got to be thinking back to this again and go, as a godly leader, this has to be where we go. I have to think about how do I care about the needs, the corporeal needs. Now, the other side of that is the church of corpses, where we're going to care about all of the issues affecting people and all the things, whether it's justice issues or what have you, but not care at all about the soul. We care about the body without the soul. You see, we need both because God cares about both the body and the soul. He cares about our corporeal needs, issues re regarding justice, issues regarding advocacy, as well as the internal. What does it mean to be rightly related and rightly reconciled to the very creator that made us? They all should come together. They really shouldn't happen. One shouldn't happen to the exclusion of the other. Mercy, advocacy allowing for ways to provide comfort for those who are perishing, who are suffering. And then verses 8 and 9, speak up for those who have no voice, for the justice of all who are dispossessed. Speak up, judge righteously, and defend the cause of the oppressed and the needy. So, so not only are we showing mercy to try to help alleviate suffering, but there's a real sense of advocacy. So it's not just, man, that's really sad, I'm going to pray for you. I mean, no question, we need to be praying. But the next question is, and what a leader does, what exists within the realm of my own time, talent, treasure, in order to help advocate for those who may not be able to advocate for themselves? Mm -hmm. Well, man, that's, that means I'm going to have to actually do a little bit of research and learn what, why is it that there are those or what groups exist or what people, what friends, what family members, what neighbors do I have that may be in a position where they cannot advocate for themselves? 
or maybe their voice is not indexed as highly as another. And so whatever they need to be cared for well, they don't have. What's, what's my role in that? Where should I be? Where, where's God's heart in that? Fight for and in the place of those who are marginalized and disenfranchised. He says, speak up. Speak up. Open your mouth for the mute. The rights of those that are destitute. Open your mouth and judge righteously. Defend. Advocate for the poor and needy. So, so advocacy is something God requires of a flourishing leader for the sake of having a flourishing community. When I went, I, I did an MBA a few years ago, and I remember one of the biggest, there were big d- debates that would come up in school and people would kind of wonder, okay, so what is, what are like the biggest benchmarks for like a healthy economy? And there's a lot of different debates on that. Most people would agree though, that uh, for a country to measure how well their economy is doing. There's a certain class of people that we always highlight. What class do we highlight when it's political season? What class do we highlight? What do we say? We want to care about the poor, middle class. <laughs> My son says rich people. Middle class, right? <laughs> that's typically the benchmark, right? We'll say, care about the, that's how we know things are really good. But in God's economy, who does he say? What does he say is the real benchmark for what it means to genuinely love and care like he does? The poor, the needy. New Testament calls it the least of these. So on some level, the way we should be measuring how well we're loving others, how well our, whatever our prayer lives look like, our spiritual disciplines, does it move me in this direction so that my my heart's greatest affections are ignited by these types of issues? Because if it's not, then we have to ask again, is this just my own heart or is this God's heart working? These are hard. These are things, this is a part of our sanctification. This is something, a rhythm that we need to walk through over and over and be reminded over and over again. But it's interesting because, again, whenever there's uh, uh, people who are running for office or what have you, we typically will, everybody knows, okay, I'm going to defend the cause of whatever constituents I want to vote for me. But ultimately, this is where the heart of God's people should be. The least of these, as Jesus called them, the poor, the needy, the speechless, those who have no voice in the corridors of power, those who cannot afford to speak on their behalf without the support of a ruler or a leader or another voice that is indexed more highly than theirs. Now, listen, when you look at these examples, where do we see the epitome of all these things that we just talked about? Where do we see the epitome of one who is prudent? One one who practices ultimate personal sobriety. One who practices perfect, perfect advocacy and mercy. We see it in Jesus. We see it in Jesus. You do realize that the heart of God ultimately is not wrapped up in principles. It's in a person. It's in the very person of Jesus. You realize just how perfectly Jesus was the epitome of self-control. You remember back in Matthew 4, the Holy Spirit leads Jesus into the wilderness. He's tempted by Satan. That test begins in earnest after Jesus fasts for 40 days and 40 nights. No food, no water. Jesus was hungry. And in this time of weakness, Satan came and tempts Jesus and tempts him to turn those stones into bread. Tempts him to comfort yourself the way that you have the ability to do. You, you can create food, take these stones and turn them into bread, and the Lord refused. 
Our Lord refused. What did he say? Man can't live off bread alone. But out of every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. He practices this type of prudence, this type of, I'm not going to give in and just do the thing for myself to the exclusion of those that I'm here to actually save, those that I'm here to love, those that I'm here to lead. But not only is Jesus this perfect example of prudence, he's the perfect epitome of what it means to, to, to show genuine mercy and advocacy. You remember when Jesus heard about what had happened to John the Baptist, you see this in Matthew 14, he withdrew by boat privately to this solitary place. The crowds found out and followed him. Just imagine for a minute, where is Jesus at this time? John the Baptist has been beheaded. He's heard this horrific thing that has occurred. He is going away to do what any of us would want to do when we lose someone we care about, someone that we love. He's giving himself time processing what just occurred, mourning what just occurred. So he's got a legitimate reason to kind of be on his own and by himself. And yet the crowds found out where he was and they began to follow him on foot. And when he stepped ashore, he saw the large crowd. And what the word of God says is he had compassion on them. He had compassion. Here he is in his own state of mourning. So mourning something horrific that has just occurred. That doesn't get set aside. He's still feeling that, but he has deep compassion for the crowd and it begins to heal their sick now this is this is this thing of how do i decenter myself and decenter my stuff in order to care about those that are in need that isn't particularly human that's not what we do normally which means there's some intervention in our hearts that's necessary to make that be the case right this isn't a, a sermon to go do better this is really a, sen a sense of all the ways that this isn't true of my heart, I need to apprehend more of Jesus. Because the more that I apprehend more of who Jesus is, that's when this heart change continually happens. But not only is he the epitome of mercy, Jesus is the epitome of justice. You remember John 8? This story, I feel like we don't talk about enough. We talk about it in one sense, but not in, uh, on another. The woman that was caught in the adulterous affair. Remember that? Uh, Pharisees were parading this woman in front of everyone so she could be uh, shamed publicly and punished publicly. What we don't often talk about is how um, women would suffer disproportionately for such crimes. Because they caught her in the midst of adultery, they say, right? Where's the man in the story? Because in many ways, these laws were disproportionately enforced. There was a, a, a huge break Injustice, there was a huge uh, unequal scale. Now, let me just say this. As Christians, we all, there's a, a good word that folks used to love to throw out whenever there's certain behaviors or sinful behaviors that we all agree are, are wrong or all things that we know that God hates. And so we'll bring up, well, that right there, that's an abomination. You know, another abomination God said? God says, unequal weights and measures are an abomination to me. So my question to all of us is, do we have the same vitriol for unequal weights and measures and injustice that we have for whatever, whatever other issues or sin issues that we hate? Because if we don't, then it's not God's heart at play, is it? It's largely ours. So Jesus sees that. He, he, it's not just whatever this woman was doing, because there's a lot historically we start to understand. First of all, if this woman is in this adulterous affair and we find out that she's had multiple husbands before, let me just tell you, women back in those days couldn't just get divorces for themselves. 
They were divorced. Someone, the men were the only ones that could issue writings of divorcement. And what we also know is that many men during that time would utilize this, uh, the, the, the policy of the dowry as a way to create a very unjust society for certain women. So if I liked you and I paid a dowry to your dad and I ended up having you for a while, and then all of a sudden there's somebody else that I want, I can just bring up a trumped up charge, get my dowry back, and then go and be with someone else. There's a really good chance that this woman is actually dealing with real injustice. But we just jump on the one thing and go, flog her. And guess who has a heart for her? Jesus does. We don't know exactly what's happening, but I don't think it's out of the realm of possibility because we know just how disproportionate those laws were. And so what, is, what happens? Jesus sees this woman and she's standing there and she probably knows what's coming because they caught her. Whoever the man is, we don't know who he is. Some wonder if the man wasn't one of the men that were there. And so she's there and Jesus sees that and they bring her to him, knowing that men wouldn't be punished at the same rate. And this adulterous woman's only hope was Jesus standing up for her, speaking for her, getting ready to take a hit from the powers that be. And Jesus leverages his privilege for someone without privilege and saying what needed to be said to turn the tide. Pointed out their hypocrisy. There's a lot of theories as to what it is he wrote in the sand during that time. Some people wonder if he started writing the names of the men who had been with her and some of those were the guys getting ready to throw stone. Why he said he who was without sin cast the first stone. What you see there is not just uh, Jesus just protecting this woman. He's I mean, genuinely speaking truth to power, that's what advocacy looks like. Jesus is the epitome of justice, pointing out their hypocrisy and their failure to apply the same no-tolerance policy to themselves. And this is what Jesus does with us. He takes us in our sinful state, and he moves our hearts to be broken and to repent, and then he advocates for us to the Father. This is the leader that God requires. Prudence in relationships, sobriety and decision-making and recreation and comfort and advocacy manifested by mercy and justice. And I'll just close with this. When, when, we, when we planted our church about eight years ago, for a while we had met in a movie theater and it was fun, those were fun times. The kids always got free popcorn. <laughs> we did not use it for communion, I promise. <laughs> And, and during that time, uh, <laughs> during that time, it was interesting. I would I'd be preaching, and uh, we were getting to the end. And, and usually, we had about a half hour after we were done before the theater would turn around and get ready to have uh, folks come in and watch movies. And one time, I was ending and was ending the sermon, and all of a sudden, behind me on the screen, previews start going. <laughs> now, y'all, you know, I know sometimes I can be long-winded. I'm trying to deal with that. You know, I'm working on that. Guys, working on me. I don't think I was going that long that day. And all of a sudden, these, tra these trailers are just going and music going and everything and all of these things. It's weird when you're ending a sermon, all of a sudden you hear, in a world. <laughs> they pushed him too far. And so I'm, I'm standing there and I'm like, whoa, what's going on? And we see the trailers and they get it fixed, get it worked out. Now, I remember a, a few weeks later, it's kind of chuckling, we were telling the story. But there, re there really was something... Uh, pressing in that. There was something that it hit my heart in that, and it stuck with me ever since. Because when you think about what a preview is, what is it that makes you want to see a movie? 
Like for the most part, there's not a movie that you go see that you that you have not either seen a preview or read a preview for. Like I knew when Sharknado came out that there was nothing in it that commended itself to me that made me want to patronize it. Now that was you, grace and peace to you. I'm gonna pray for your choices. But for me, it just wasn't it. It's like I don't, I, this is not for me. I don't want to do that. But there was nothing about that preview, right, that commended some sense of value or actor or actress that made me want to patronize. You see, ultimately, as believers, as Christians, those who have been called by God, changed by God, redeemed by God, we are the trailer. We are this picture of the coming attraction. And so when people come and they see and they're involved and are in community with us and they hear us and they watch us, they should go, wow, they're, they're seeing the way that prudence and sobriety and advocacy are married, are intertwined, and they're... If that's the kingdom that's coming, how do I get a ticket? That's what, that's what we're here for. We're the foreshadowing of the kingdom that's already and not yet arrived. So if we are in a place where we're saying, Lord, I want to love like you will sing things. Uh, you know, I'm so thankful that you've redeemed me and you called me and I want to love what you love and I want to hate what you hate. Well, then let's pray, Lord, let us lead like you lead. Yeah. This is what you called us to. This is the leader that God requires. So do we look for this in ourselves? Do we look for these things in our leaders? You cannot know Jesus and ignore this. These attributes are not as common. They're not as common in us. And yet mom's wisdom to Lemuel was God's wisdom to Lemuel. And it's God's wisdom to us. So may God make us careful and aware of what this type of leader looks like. May we... Look for and become the leaders that cease from serving self and our favorites and begin to serve others the way Jesus has served us. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we are patently aware that if we're honest, we don't need another platform. We don't need um, another uh, party. We don't need another speech. We don't need another sermon. Father, above all else, we need your spirit. And so, God, I pray that you, in the ways that we need to be made, um, in, in, in a very holy way, discontent, discontented in ways that our hearts don't look like yours, are not still fashioned the way they need to be, things that we're doing that gets in the way. God, I pray that you would convict us, that you would break us, but that you would remake us to continue to love, live, and lead like you. God, all the ways that we have remade you to look like ourselves and then worship that, will you cast that item down? God, I pray that you would give us such a deep jealousy for your glory, your holistic glory in our individual lives as well as in our corporate community. God, give us a deep jealousy for that. I pray that in every area of our lives, that you would remain the unavoidable issue and that we would walk in that and be changed by that. In the matchless name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.